Welcome to Romans Untangled, the podcast where we take a seemingly difficult book of the Bible and untangle it so that we can enjoy its beauty. Season 3, Episode 9, Grafted In, Romans 11, verses 11 to 24. As we've been moving along here in the book of Romans, especially now in chapters 9 to 11, the Apostle Paul seems to be indicating that the Jewish people are rejecting Jesus as Messiah. By and large, they're doing that, and, and there's a few exceptions to that, but, but by and large, they're rejecting him. Has God changed his mind, and, and does he now consider the Gentiles his favorites? Is there hope for the Jews? That's where we're headed today on Romans Untangled. Pastor Steve Treichler here in my basement studio, sitting on my pool table and my sequence game box for a prop on my mic, my multi-dollar mic, as I like to say. Uh, hey, glad to glad to be with you. Uh, I know some of you have asked me at church and other places about my mom. My mom is doing much better. She's been, uh, she had a fall and hit her head, uh, and it looks like she'll be released here from the hospital in perhaps uh, another day or two. So we're feeling very encouraged by that, and thanks for your prayers for my mom. Her name is Ruth, if you're still praying for her. Appreciate that. We're starting this season uh, just doing a little bit of church history in every one of our episodes. It's just kind of a way to uh, find out more ways that, uh, honestly, the book of Romans has been super influential on, on, on church history, and especially in the period of church history we've been talking about. We talked about the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther, his wife, uh, Katie, as he would call her, or Katerina, uh, and then last week we talked about John Calvin. If you were to ask who the four big people were of the of the Reformation, it would be Martin Luther, of course, and and most people know John Calvin. But there are two others that are very important as well. We're going to look at one this week and then one next week, and that would be uh, Ulrich Zwingli this week, and then next week we'll look at John Knox. And so we're going to kind of hone in on this period of the Reformation. And one of the reasons we're doing this is because, quite frankly, uh, the Book of Romans has been huge for uh, the Reformation and the idea of justification just by faith. And and these things are all in the Book of Romans. And so uh, we wanted to take some time to do that. So this week, it's by a man by the name of Ulrich Zwingli. He was born in the Lower Alps area on a farm. He had a deep love for his homeland, and early on, uh, he came to this love of God and wanted to become a pastor, a parish priest is what he wanted. In fact, he's known for saying one of his famous phrases is, he says, quote, for God's sake, do not put yourself at odds with the word of God, for truly it will persist as surely as the Rhine, that's the river, follows its course, one can perhaps dam it up for a while, but it is impossible to stop it. Now, one of the big things that is of interest about Zwingli is that actually his time of life uh, very much overlaps Luther's. If you look at their lifespans, they're almost almost identical in some ways, at least when they were born. And if you see here, Luther was born in 1483, and he lives until 1546. Zwingli's born in 1484, and he 
dies, or we'll find this, he dies in battle, actually, in 1531 as a relatively young man. But remember, the Reformation actually begins with Martin Luther at the age of around 33, 34 years old, posting the 95 Theses on the door at Wittenberg in 1517. Okay, and so Zwingli and, and Luther are contemporaries. In fact, John Calvin is going to pick up where Zwingli kind of left off and, and take from there. You're going to see that John Calvin and John Knox are very much contemporaries as well. So you have Zwingli and Luther, and they're doing the Reformation. is kind of taking places in two different parts of the world. Luther, of course, in the German area. And uh, Zwingli is is taking his uh, Reformation where he was a parish priest in Zurich, Switzerland. So it's interesting because he's passionate about the ministry. He's passionate about his people. And before the Reformation, he says this. He's talking about that time period. And he says, though I was young, ecclesiastical duties, that means like, uh, shepherding people, caring for them, discipling them, training them. Ecclesiastical duties inspired in me more fear than joy because I knew and remained convinced that I would give an account of the blood of the sheep, which would perish as a consequence of my carelessness. So he was very passionate about the pastoral ministry, unlike Luther, who was personally on this on this quest for salvation, thinking I can never be good enough Whereas Zwingli, um, he wanted to really minister to his people. And he just, they didn't get good training in the Bible at all. And so all of a sudden now, when the rise of the printing press and the rise of the Reformation, all of a sudden a lot of things become uh, available and he reads voraciously. And in two years after the Reformation, in 1519, he begins preaching in his church primarily from the New Testament, having have his teaching himself Greek and learning the Greek New Testament. And around, we don't know exactly when his conversion happens, where he, he understands that it's by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, that he comes in. But we see some very interesting things. He, in 1522, he marries. Now, you were not supposed to do that as a Catholic Priest in that same year, he he breaks a traditional Lenten fast and he eats sausages in public, uh, and he writes against fasting, which these were bad things to be doing. And then one year later, in 1523, he goes before the Zurich City Council, and he has 67 theses. Again, 28 shy, perhaps of. Luther's 95, but he's giving them these very important things that they they want to reform the city. One of those it begins with, all who say, this is, uh, this is Wingley's number one thesis, all who say that the gospel is invalid without the confirmation of the church, err and slander God. Now, I know that's, uh, that's probably something that many of us just take for granted, but in that day, that was radical to say that that there was salvation in Jesus Christ and you didn't have to go through any particular church to get there. And that was just incredible. And he goes twice before the city council, uh, once in January of 1523 and then again in October of 1523, where he's arguing more and more of a Protestant understanding or a biblical understanding of all of the all of the ways of salvation, all the ways of God, and 
how that's going to influence public life in Zurich. In 1524, he actually now has a, a wedding that he for his with his wife, and he says now that uh, he, very public about it, and he says pastors or priests have a right to marry. In 1525, he convinces the city to abolish the mass. Now that's a huge deal because uh, the the mass was saying that that there was a thing called transubstantiation, and that was where uh, Christ was crucified every single week for people's sins. And Zwingli says, "No, absolutely not. We're going to have a simple service, and it's the Lord's Supper, but it's a symbolic memorial." It's a very interesting thing here to note in that Zwingli and Luther meet. And they come together and they have a list of of doctrines that they're trying to agree where they could take these two movements, the one in Germany and the one in Switzerland, and maybe unite them. And it's interesting. They have 15 points that they're trying to agree on, and they agree completely on 14. But when it comes to the 15th point, which was um, the Lord's Supper, Zwingli held for it was a memorial meal. And Luther insists that it is a literal presence of Jesus, not a spiritual presence, but it wasn't uh, transubstantiation. It's something that Luther called consubstantiation. And this does not go well uh, between the two of them. And at this point in time, doctrine was away, kind of like in our age with politics and and other things. Uh, Everything just goes to 11 if you disagree And even though Luther agreed with Zwingli on so many things, he says of him that Zwingli was of the devil and that he was nothing but a wormy nut. And Zwingli resented Luther treating him, quote unquote, like an ass. (laughs) They They never get their movements to come together, not in their lifetime. Because two years later, Zwingli goes out to stand up against Catholic for military forces coming in and into Zurich, and he's defending Zurich, and he is killed on the battlefield. As a matter of fact, he's, he's one of the first ones out, and he, he dies right away. He is known, though, however, as someone who changed the course of Protestantism in Europe, and especially in this area of Switzerland, uh, where a man by the name of Heinrich Bullinger, he's the successor of this movement, And that branch of Protestantism just starts to flourish under Zwingli's leadership in the beginning and then later others to follow. So that's our little jaunt into history. Now, let's get on to the book of Romans. Got fun, fun, fun passage to look at this week. Okay, so um, if you've been going through this, this season with us, the question has primarily been, what about the Jews? Why are there so many Gentiles in these churches that Paul has started and others have started in the, in the known world at that time? But there's so few Jews. Isn't the Old Testament their story? And we found that the key verse to the whole chapters 9 to 11 is verse uh, chapter 9, verse 6, where it says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, this is not God's doing that it doesn't work this way. In other words, it is, and Paul goes on to other uh, reasons why. In fact, he's going to give four arguments. We've talked about this several times, but from chapter 9, 
Verses 6 to 29, it's about God's sovereignty and his promises. His promises are sure, and God's in control of things. Don't freak out. We look at the end of chapter 3, excuse me, the end of chapter 9, verse 30, through chapter 10, and it talks about human responsibility. They sought after it as if it were by works, like they can earn it as opposed to looking at Jesus as Messiah. Then, in where we ended up last week, we saw that the, the third argument is this is a call to Israel to come to faith now. Now, this week and the next two weeks, we only have this episode and two more this season. We're calling it the story's not over yet, though. The story is not over yet. There is an invitation here. So let's take a look at this. I want to read the passage thoroughly and then through with you, and then we'll kind of dive into it. Here we go. Romans 11, verses 11 to 24. And this time I'm going to read from the New International Version. Again, I ask... Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I might somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches." If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will then say, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were if you were cut out of an olive tree that is by, wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily would those, the natural branches, excuse me, these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Okay, we're diving now into... A, the end of this whole section, and it is a very controversial section. Uh, commentators are all over the map, but we'll get into that really more next week. I'll kind of hint at it this week where the controversy lies. Um, but the question, the big question always when, when we're, for, you know, we read these things and then we're going to uh, kind of look at this passage and say, let's untangle this. First thing we're going to do, that's the name of this podcast, is what's the big idea here? What's the forest here? And the the forest is verse 11. Okay, it's very clear here. The forest is verse 
11, Paul says, and, 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 and boy, I don't understand the NIV's translation here for the life of me, but again, it says, again, I ask. And, and what he's really saying there is the word again should not be there. It should say, then I ask, or he's kind of summarizing, but he's not, he's not repeating the question. And the NIV, unlike any other translation, I, I don't understand. I like the NIV a lot, but this one just, I don't get. I ask then, and here's the question, did they, we got to ask who's the they, that's very important, did they stumble so far, excuse me, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? And then Paul gives one of his, not at all, or me genoito, remember, hell no, as the Cotton Patch Bible says. That's, it's a very strong, emphatic no. That's the question. In other words, it seems to be that's where Paul's leading us to say, that the Jews are so far gone. They're rejecting Jesus in droves. They're not in the churches in anywhere near the, the percentages that they should be. And it seems to be that uh, God's going to write them off. And that Paul saying, not at all. And then he gives what is going to be the answer here. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Okay, so this is the huge piece here that Paul's, that's the big idea. Did they fall so they can't come back? The answer is no way. And rather, because they did fall, this opens up the Gentiles to come in and Israel's on the outside now looking in and it makes them envious, like they will want to be in. Okay, that's the big idea. And there's a lot going on there. And that the rest of the chapter is just describing that. Now, very important to go back to verse 11. You could look at the word they. Did they stumble so, so as to fall beyond recovery? And, and who the they are there, and this whole passage, this whole passage is referring to nations or people groups or plural Right? It's not talking about individual people. That's really important when you, especially when you get to this whole grafting in and grafting out. And it sounds like one of those passages where, oh my goodness, I could be taken out if I don't obey perfectly or those kinds of things. And and that's not that's not what that's not what the apostle Paul is saying. He he is trying to get them to understand that the they is all of Israel who seems to be rejecting Jesus like crazy, and uh, but they can come back. And that's going to be Paul's big point. In fact, we're going to see that next week. And, and where I land on some of this, people say, what's the future of Israel? I, I don't think that Israel has any you know, special, like they're one up on everybody else. And yet at the very same time, I don't know what else to do with the chapter 11 of the book of Romans, especially what we dive into next week, that there's a special place in redemptive history for Jewish people, and something is big is going to happen with them. And I don't know exactly what that is, and I don't know when that is, but it's something, okay? So that's what we will see here as we keep moving forward. Now, the big idea that Paul's getting at here in the first, from verses 11 to 16, okay? So if you just have your Bible opener, you can look at it. It's kind of this he keeps going back and forth and he says, if their transgression, if the Jewish people through unbelief went away, if what that ultimately meant then was riches for everybody else, what will happen if they actually accept the message, right? 
That's what he's saying in verse 12. In verse 13, he's saying, listen, you people who are Gentiles, you're non-Jews, right? I take pride in you, but you got to understand, part of that pride in you is that I want, I want as many of my own people to get saved, to know Christ. And then he repeats it. If their rejection brought reconciliation to the world or to the nations or to the Gentiles, what will their acceptance be? But, but even more than that, life from the dead. And he says, if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, then are the branches. Okay? So he's using different metaphors here. One is this dough, and you give a part of a dough that's holy. It's not, it hasn't got any, any, uh, any infection in it or whatever. And then the whole batch becomes healthy, right? And he says, if the root is healthy of a tree, or in this case of a, like a vine or something like that, then you, the branches will be healthy. Now he's going to carry on with that metaphor. And he says, if some of the branches have been broken off, and you, and who's the you here? Verse 13, I'm talking to you Gentiles. So some of the branches are broken off, and you, though you're a wild olive shoot. So now he's talking about an, an olive branch, and, and you know you have this olive tree, and there, this it's a wild, there was one out in the wild, not in the vineyard, not normally where it would be. And it says, you've now been granted, grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. He says, hey, listen, you, I don't want you to consider yourself, Gentiles, superior to the other branches, the Jewish branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. Okay, so... Let me, let me, let me, there's more to this, there's more to this analogy here, but let me just back up here and get a little bit out of the analogy. So what, what's he saying here? What is this root? Is the root the old covenant? The Old Testament law and all that? Well, no, that can't possibly be it because Paul's went over and over and over about that is not, that's not what saves you by any stretch. So what is this root that's holy that ultimately is the thing that we're grafted into? And most scholars totally agree on this, but it goes back to the promises given to the patriarchs or specifically the promise given to Abraham that all the nations on the earth will be blessed through you. Nations, right? And so this promise that was given to Abraham and it results in this people group called Israel, which also then results in an old covenant, which is Mosaic law, that this root that goes that way is the one that's down in the bottom. And Gentiles are actually grafted into the root. The root is not Israel. The other branches are Israel. But the root is the promise given to Abraham. We've talked about that several times on this podcast. So that is the promises. Those are non-negotiable. Go back to Romans chapter 4. It's many podcasts ago. But go back to Romans chapter 4 where Abraham, this is the key thing, is the promise given to Abraham. And that root, that Old Testament root, is what the church of Jesus Christ today, and if you're a member of that, what you yourself are supported by, that root supports you. So we do, we don't want to, Paul's basic thing here is, hey, 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 now don't you get arrogant Gentiles and think you're superior to the Jews. You're also sinners saved by grace. Go back to Romans 11, verse 19 now. 
You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be granted in. In other words, branches came off. They, they, you know, you went through Romans 9 and 10, saw that by their unbelief and by their wanting to, to seek after by works and not by grace, uh, they didn't want to go after God's ways. They wanted to establish a righteousness of their own and on and on and on. They were removed, right? But they were broken off because of unbelief. That's what he says in verse 20. And what was unbelief? Unbelief was works. Unbelief was basing your own salvation, your own standard with God based on what you did and didn't do, what you ate and didn't eat, what days of the week you worshiped. Uh, you know, if you followed all the cultural and moral laws of the Old Testament. And he goes on, you stand by faith, but don't be arrogant. But tremble, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And again, this is talking about nations. And so you have, you could even, you could even say this is a, a port, just say this has to do with people from Brazil. And Brazilians have been grafted in, even though they're not Jewish and they're grafted in. But if they get arrogant and think it's about them and all these kind of things, and as a church they move that way, eventually that will be removed. And then they won't be there. There's nothing special about them. Not individuals here. That's not what he's talking about. He's just saying that not any individual Jewish person was broken out of the tree of salvation. But they were not, they weren't, did not stay in there because they didn't do it when Christ came and followed him by faith. And verse 23, if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily would these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? In other words, uh, there is a special place for Jewish folks. There's, very, there's something very real about that this promise given to Abraham, when it was said, it was said to the world, but at first it was said to Abraham, and then to Abraham's descendants, and then to those descendants. But the world hears about it, but you hear about it through, through Abraham. And if you remember back in Romans 9, Paul talks about, um, they, you know, verse 4 of chapter 9, he says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the the, the temple worship and the promises to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So in other words, you see, he, he, he's, he's going into this saying, that's their story and the Gentiles, and that's myself included, were, were grafted into this story, into the story of the promise given to Abraham. And again, we've said over and over and over here, one of the errors of reading the Old Testament was that Israel was God's people, and in order to become a person uh, so that you were God's person, you needed to get into Israel. That is not true, because Israel, it says here, the branches are being broken off. What is the root is the promise given to Abraham. And this is huge if you read the book of Galatians as well. It is massive there where he goes into the passage about 
how through Abraham, all people who eventually will become followers of Christ are saved. Listen to this. Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. He says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations will be blessed. And this is a direct quote from Genesis 12, verse 3. That's the root, folks. That's the root. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And that's Paul's big point here. Paul's big point is you are in Christ because you trust Christ. Don't get arrogant about your race. Don't get arrogant about where you live. Don't get arrogant about your nationality. Don't get arrogant about your socioeconomic status. Don't get arrogant about your bank account. Any of these things. It is through Christ and Christ alone. And your simple faith in Christ. And Christ is the most important part of those three words. (laughs) Not your faith. It's not about you. It's about what he's done and what he's accomplished. And Paul is saying there is hope for the Jewish people who've rejected Jesus. And there's hope for anyone who's rejecting Jesus. You may have loved ones right now that are doing that very thing. They've come to a point in their life where they have heard about Jesus, they reject him as Messiah. They, They don't want to have anything to do with him for a variety of reasons. There's hope for them. There's hope for them. Maybe you have Jewish friends and you think, oh my goodness, they have so much in common with us and yet they miss the most important thing, which is Jesus Christ. Next week, we are going to take a look at this and watch Paul kind of blow our minds with his hope for the Jewish people. We'll see you next week on Romans Untangled.